Welcome back. Richard, it's good to see you and happy Easter to you, my friend. Good morning. You can tell I've got a different background today, right? I can see that. Which means I must be in a different place. That is usually what that means. Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm in a new place and everybody here is still sleeping. So, so bear with me. Yes. Well, we'll hope that uh, we don't wake anyone and, and suddenly have uh, dogs barking and people walking through. <laughs> and and uh, wives and daughters barking yes. because I woke them up. But the topic is worth it. So we're going to do this because this is this is a topic worth pursuing. So here we go. Absolutely. So we're, we're going to it's a, sort of an extension of some of the things that we've talked about recently. And, and that is um, we're going to talk about this the significant increase that we have seen over the past, well, decade or two, really. Um, That's right. In the past, in the past couple of years, there's been this flurry of articles about mental health of um, children and teenagers, the, the rapid increase in mental health problems in, um, in uh, young teens and uh, older teenagers and even young adults. So there's this uh, span. And every once in a while, you open up a website, you, you keep seeing this same information. And we had done a podcast last week on the, the increases in teen suicide rates. Right. And I thought, and here we go again, there's this article about mental health issues in teenagers and young adults. So I thought, let me, let me take a closer look at this and see what's going on. Right. Yeah. So there, there's a couple of articles in the show notes that we mentioned and that we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about today. Um, one is from the American Journal of, of Managed Care um, that really highlights one of the first, one of the main articles that um, that really highlighted this issue, uh, and that's from the American Psychological Association, where they, right. you know, they they conducted this study between uh, 2009 and 2019, um, and they were looking at um, the the in significant increase in in depression and anxiety and some of these. Uh, different um, affective or internalizing uh, conditions in in adolescence today, right? Yeah, the, that and that's that's what produced all these articles. Is that the APA did a study of that ten year period, roughly 2009-2019. Um, and one of the conclusions of that study was that the cultural trends, whatever whatever was going on in the culture during that decade, and, and we're roughly talking about 2010 on, whatever was going on seemed to have a um, differential effect on adolescents and young adults than it did on anybody else. The, the interesting part of the study is it was a lifespan study. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, you found the same thing, that it seemed to have a differential effect on um, teenagers and young adults, but no effect on whatever was going on in the culture didn't affect Americans really over the age of 25 and certainly not over the age of 65. Absolutely. So, so just thinking about some of those, some of those statistics. Okay. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and so when they're, we have to think about this. So when they're collecting data um, right. from 2009 until 2019 or so um, what they're really collecting, they're not collecting data from actually those dates. Right. So they're, they're really having uh, looking at information from 2008 to about 2017 or so. So if we're looking at that span of time, um, there was a 71% increase in serious psychological distress in individuals between the ages of 18 
and 25. And, right. and for depression specifically, there was a 52% increase. So that is, that's, again, like you said, that's a tremendous increase right. in these mm -hmm. symptoms in, in that particular population and in, in people within those seven years of age, <laughs> um, a, a massive increase. Um, there was also a 78% increase in serious psychological distress in those um, between 20 and 21 uh, right. with depression right. at 63%. So again, even narrowing it even more, we can see even a more um, significant risk or significant increase in, in distress. Right, right. And yet, as we said, those rates actually declined in older adults. You know? right. so, so, so it wasn't something that was affecting everybody. You know, the, we think of the pandemic, but the pandemic affects all age groups. Okay. Right. Um, but th there's something there's something going on that seems to be affecting people between the ages of, of uh, 13 and 21, because even even the rates of depression remain stable in um, in in the in those 26 and older. Right. And so whatever was affecting the teenagers wasn't affecting uh, even even young adults, 26 year olds and, and right. up. OK. And, you know, we did that. We did that podcast last week that had similar data. You know, right. that from 2010 to 2020, roughly the same period, that suicide death rates increased by 50 percent in that 13 to eight year group. Okay, um, and so we see this same thing by 2014. So that would be about the middle of this study. Um, suicide had become the second leading cause of death in 10 to 14 year olds, and the leading cause of death in 10 to 17 year olds. Uh, the, these are data from Utah, but yeah. it, it seems like it's happening um, across states. Um, this, this same age range seems to be differentially affected by whatever is going on around them. Right. And so no, say, no matter what, no matter what the statistics are, whether we're looking at Utah, whether we're looking at this, the, the APA data from nationwide, um, whatever data that we're looking at, it. it it's not looking great for this group of individuals the, right. between the ages of about 13 to the mid twenties. And right. so, um, you know, one of the, so we, we looked at this, um, looking into this a little bit more, found this article from the Atlantic and another, it's another article that's linked in the show notes. And, um, you know, they kind of pull together this idea of, of why teenagers are so sad these days. What's, right. what's contributing to this. And, this really is the crux of what we're going to talk about today. Right. Yeah, The Atlantic is really doing some, some good work. And Derek Thompson is one of their staff writers. Mm -hmm. And he does very thorough research. And he, and he has this wonderful way of taking um, complex ideas and uh, distilling them into, into meaningful information. And when we get to the end of this podcast, um, he's going to talk about what... what what this, uh, what these effects have been attributed to. And so um, I think he's done a masterful job. And, um, and, and his article, again, begins with the, these troubling data. Um, he, he uses data from a CDC study. So we've seen an APA study for these years. Now there's a CDC study. And um, the CDC study looked at what researchers call persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness is what they were looking for. And these are studies that are done almost yearly mm -hmm. by uh, CDC. And so they're tracking feelings of sadness and hopelessness. And they thought they report an, an increase from 26% to 44% of American high school students who feel sad and, and hopeless. 
they've never they've never reached 44% in the past. Okay, this is the highest um, increase that's ever been recorded. Right, and again, this is in the same time period. Um, the CDC was talking about from 2009 until 2021. So again, this roughly this same decade, um, uh, this past decade um, of the of the what we call it the teens. Um, <clears throat> so, so yeah, again, whether you're looking at uh, the APA data, the data from Utah, or or the CDC, we, we're seeing everyone is reporting the similar significant increase in uh, depressive like or, or um, psychological distress in, in this age group. That's right. And, and we see it across, across issues. Um, we talk about feelings of sadness and hopelessness. But we remember from last week's podcast that suicide attempts and deaths from suicide are also increasing significantly in these populations. So the big picture here, what he's telling us is that almost every measure of mental health status is getting worse. It doesn't matter what you look at. It can be sadness, hopelessness. Um, it can be suicide attempts, uh, suicide completions. Regardless of what you look at, every measure is getting worse. And it's for every teenage demographic. It's, it's across races, it's across cultures, it's across, and it's across states. It's happening, you know, we mentioned Utah before that, um, Suicide is the leading cause of death uh, up to age 17. Uh, it's happening across states. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a widespread, almost ubiquitous problem. Right. And so there seems to be this pervasive feeling of sadness and hopelessness in young people that's leading them to make these um, life-changing decisions. Right. And so, so as we think about why this is happening, you know, that that's, that's always the goal uh, of some of this research is to, to figure out, okay, so we, we see these, these data, um, and, and we can, we can analyze it, and we can talk about it, but we really want to figure out why it's happening. Um, and, and I think that we, we need to kind of start out with kind of dispelling some fallacies, because right. um, mm -hmm. we're very tempted to, to, you know, pick that low hanging fruit of, um, well, you know, um, it's just teens being bad, you know, it, it's just, they, they're just complaining. Um, Lying and complaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so that's probably all that it is. Right. Well, it's probably not. Um, there's other data to suggest that it's not that. Right. That's right. Because a lot of the other, what we consider bad behaviors are not changing. Uh, drinking and driving down 50%, uh, fights in school down 50%, um, sex in young teenagers down 70%, um, LGBTQ acceptance is up, uh, though they have so, this group has so many struggles, um, the acceptance among their peers is up, okay, yeah. so that it doesn't look like this is just teenagers being teenagers. Right. And the other uh, related to that is that, you know, well, one of the explanations that's often thrown out there is that, well, you know, teenagers have always been moody. Um, yeah. you know, so they, they've always kind of had some of these issues. But again, if that was the case, then why would the data change so significantly? If, right. if teenagers have always been moody and have always, you know, this is the same thing that's always been going on with teenagers, why would this, this increase um, be so significant? Right. And so 
when we talk about hopelessness and sadness, that, that's a subjective measure. You know, they're, they're looking at a box and they check one, two, three, or four. Told you. People are getting up. But also what, what Thompson points out is the objective measures are increasing. So there's been an increase in eating disorders. There's been an increase in self-harming behavior. And these are not subjective opinions. These are hospital data. Uh, teen suicides, all of the objective measures that something is dreadfully wrong are also up. So it's not just a new crop of teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the millennials and disease and the excess. It doesn't seem to be that because even the objective measures are up. Uh, absolutely. And, and I guess that the, the other you know, very tempting uh, low hanging fruit is to blame it on COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, right. but, but again, you know, as we've talked about with the with the data, um, the, these data started in, you know, in the very least, we were looking at since 2010, um, where the, 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 um, the rates have started to increase. And so we're not just talking about these last couple of years. And, and in fact, the, um, you know, the data from the APA ended before, you know, they ended before COVID even started. So, right. um, so it's, it can't be just attributed to, um, to that. Yeah, one of the one of the things we talked about last week was we're looking at this 20 year period from 2000 to 2020, roughly, but certainly from 2010 to 2020. So all of these data were collected prior to uh, COVID. So it's not COVID. So it's not COVID. It's not whining. And it's not just uh, this group is is weak and and, uh, is just always whining. So then he goes into the forces that seem to be propelling the increases. Okay, so he then talks about, and this is where Thompson is good because what I like about his writing is that he takes these complicated issues and he has this very neat delineation of what seem to be the real uh, factors behind the increases. And the first, of course, has to be... Has to be social media. And, and right. we've talked about that before because we, we've, we've praised the work of uh, Jean Twinge uh, mm-hmm. who wrote iGen. Um, and, and she talks to, where she talks about the significant spike in, in teen sadness and anxiety um, that has occurred since 2012, right. which is, of course, when, you know, a lot of the cell phone um, and social media uh, platforms really, really came to the forefront. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it's, again, right around the time that we started seeing this significant increase in those same uh, symptoms in the youth. That's right. And I like the way he treats social media because what he says, what everybody says, Gene Twang and um, uh, studies, there was a meta-analysis of 226 studies. That's an enormous undertaking to look at the effects in 226 studies. No matter how you look at these data, Something happened around 2012 or 2013, because while the data began increasing in 2020, it spiked at around 2012 or 2013. It started okay. to increase in 2010. 2010. But I mean, the data go back to, to 2000, right. okay, 2001. But you see this rapid increase beginning around 2010. Then you see the spike. Okay, so how do you explain the spike? Well, that's about when that's when the cell phone was introduced and that's when social media. OK, so that there seems to be some correlation between mental illness, men, uh, sadness, hopelessness and something about social media. But in all the studies that have been done, the effect seems to be very small. Actually, if you look at it carefully, 
um, yeah, there's some some correlation or some relationship, but but it's it it's not uh, having that much of an effect. And then I love what he what he says here. Social media is not like rat poison. Rat poison kills everything. Okay, he said social media is more like marijuana and alcohol. It's not a problem for most people. You've said many times, a lot of boys play violent video games. Very few of them become school shooters. Right. Okay, you've said that over the years. Um, so like marijuana and alcohol, it's not a problem for most, but for some, it's the entrance to abuse. So social media, and I think that's a very good way to think about the effects of social media. Right. For most kids, it's not going to be a problem. Yes, it's irritating. We don't like to see it, but right. it's really not going to be a serious problem. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a, um, a study in 2020 on, about Instagram. Instagram did it, right. And, and, and a third of girls report that Instagram made their life worse. Not However, three out of three, right? Right, not every girl, uh, but a third of girls. Um, and okay, so if we look at those statistics a little bit, that's thirty-three percent. What did we say was the significant increase? It was approaching thirty and forty percent of kids. Right. So, so a third of girls report that it makes their life worse. But what's fascinating is that even though it makes their life worse, they say that they can't stop using it. Right, right. And that's um, what, so, what. What does that sound like? Right. It, it sounds like an addiction. Right. Um, and so we have to, but we, you know, we've kind of uh, talked about that a lot on the podcast mm -hmm. on how we, we, we kind of jump to that word of addiction uh, right. pretty easily. Um, and we can talk more about that uh, maybe in another podcast again, uh, just to kind of uh, review our, our perspectives of that. But, um, right. but the, the point is that whether it's because it's an addiction or because they, um, they, they are afraid of their lives passing uh, without knowing what all's going on with their, with their, um, with with their, their peers. peers. Um, they can't separate themselves from these media, um, even though it's making their life worse. They feel like it's making their life worse. That's right. Right. And this, these data about girls was backed up by a study in England. So again, right. even across countries. Cambridge University did a study, 84,000 teenagers, okay? Social media is associated with worse mental health in girls, ages 11 to 13. Why girls? Because teenage girls are uniquely sensitive to the, to the kind of judgments that you see on social media, okay? And social media can capture this subset of girls, probably about 30 to 35%. It's not gonna capture all of them but it will capture a subset. And I, and I think that we have to, th there are some other factors that we have to think into that as well. Sure, yes, um, you know, girls are highly affected and very sensitive to the judgment of others, mm -hmm. but it, 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 maybe boys are too, but boys aren't as likely to admit it. They aren't, they aren't as likely to answer questions. Right. Um, you know, because right. all of these are survey data. Right. And so it's influenced and, and, you know, they can only report what was reported to them uh, in survey data. And so if you ask a boy, you know, hey, how much are you affected by Instagram? Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it may be the case that a lot of boys are going to say, oh, not at all, regardless of what really is happening, because, you know, it's socially, 
it's socially accepted that boys, you know, um, as we uh, as we just said, you know, girls are uniquely sensitive to these things, implies that boys aren't. Right. Um, well, so, yeah. But if you think back to the 70s and 80s, in those years, we had girls' magazines. Right. You know, teen, you didn't have boys' magazines. Right. You had girls' magazines because they were the market. That's what they were marketed to. Because well, girls read and boys don't. Right. right. That's right. Boys play and girls read. Right. Yep. So, so we know that girls are sadly, girls are differentially affected by, by, and just as they were differentially affected by magazines, you know, Teen Vogue and all those um, magazines that came out. Now it's social media playing the same role. Okay. The other problem with social media is that not only fuels anxiety, but it makes it harder to, to uh, cope with it because there's no relief from social media. It is there. I mean, if girls in the 80s read teen magazines, again, it was about makeup and clothes and diets and, you know, they got a break from it. They would go to school and the right. magazines would stay at home. Today, there's no relief. You're never safe. You're, you're, you constantly worry about what's going on around you. It's, it's, a, it's a 24 hour a day, seven day a week ordeal for these girls. There's this constant pressure. They're being bombarded by Discord, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, and it never ends. So you never get a break from it. Okay. So if you're prone to getting abs completely absorbed, it's, it's easier to do because it's there 24 hours a day. Right. And, and all of this sort of leads to uh, his second point, and, and right. that is um, the, the significant decrease that we've seen in sociality overall. Um, and what we mean by sociality or what he means by sociality is just true interactions. Right. Um, with being real out, right. Being out and interacting with other people. Um, because if you're on social media, there are lots of other things that you're not doing. And, and that's what we've always talked about. You know, when we talk to parents about how much screen time should a kid have or how much, you know, how much time should they be allowed to play video games or on their phone? It, it's not so much that um, the video games or the, the, the technology, that's the problem. It's what the technology is replacing. That's the problem. That's right. I think that's a far bigger problem than, you know, he says social media, it affects a percentage of kids, not all kids. Right. But the other thing is, it's what social media replaces. Right. And that might be a larger problem. Absolutely. So, um, you, you know, we know that it significantly influences amount of time that kids sleep. Um, and so, and we know that when we don't sleep, we become more irritable. We become more prone to depression and anxiety and some of those kinds of things. Um, but there, there's a significant decrease in, um, you know, hours of sleep uh, that, that teenagers are receiving. Um, but we also see this significant replacement of real friends um, with online friends. Right. Mm -hmm. right? Um, how many patients or kids do you talk to, Richard, that, that you know, they're talking about a friend that it seems like it's somebody that lives in their neighborhood, but the friend lives in Japan. California, right, another country. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, well, I, I can't go to sleep. I can't go to bed then because that's when he gets off school because right. he lives in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I want to be up so that I can, we can play, um, play the game together. And so we're, we're sacrificing sleep. We're not interacting face-to-face -face with a real person. We're just 
right. in these virtual worlds all the time. Right, right. Um, Jane Twain pointed out that fewer kids are getting their driver's licenses. Right. You know, two generations ago, generation ago, your 16th birthday was as sick. That was one of the most 16 and 21 with the two right. significant birthdays because you got to drive. Kids don't need to drive anymore because their lives are not occurring outside of where they are. Our lives, our social lives occurred outside of our homes when we were 16. Today, kids' social lives are in their hands. They don't, they don't, they don't need to drive. Yeah. Fewer playing sports. Uh, mm-hmm. There are fewer kids signing up for sports and other activities, not just sports, but all other activities. And as it turns out, we know that social isolation is worse for teenagers than it is for adults. Adults right. have learned how to handle being alone. Kids can't. Kids want to be around their peers, either real peers or virtual peers. Absolutely. Uh, so isolation seems to um, have, a, have a, a, a worse effect on teenagers than it does on adults. Absolutely. And, and with all this technology mm-hmm. um, and all this time on a screen, you know, on social media, on, on some of these different things <laughs> comes, you know, we get to his third point, which is, um, and, and again, this is something that we've talked about many times on the podcast, and that is just the access to information. Right. Um, the world is more stressful now. You know, I remember growing up and, um, and, and there would be things going on in the world and I just had no idea, you know, um, blissfully unaware because unless you sat down and man, I hate saying these kind of things because these are the things that you say that make me uh, tease you <laughs> about being so old. Um, but you're, this thing, this, you're right? doing your, you're doing your darndest to get there, Bernie. but, but you know, if you didn't watch the news at six o'clock in the evening, you didn't know what was going on. Exactly. exactly. Um, you know, there were, there were, three channels that had the news and you, you, if you watched the news then you knew what was happening, or if you read the newspaper, you knew what was happening, but it had to be a physical newspaper. It wasn't reading it online or anything. Right. And that was just how you got information about what was happening in the world. Um, now, you know, I mean, kids come in, I, we, we have kids that come into sessions and they're talking about things that are happening in the Ukraine and things that are happening in Russia and, and all over the world. And, it's not for a school activity that they're learning. It's not, they're just learning it and picking it up from social media and from other um, technological uh, sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Um, And, and the sad part is, is that negative news gets more attention. So if you're in the news business, you're going to feed the audience what the audience wants. And so we often hear about these feel good news stories that doesn't sell news. That doesn't, that doesn't get advertisers. What gets advertisers is controversy, anger, negativity. And that's what we're seeing. And once again, we say the same thing here. You were bringing up a time when if you didn't see the news and it was usually on around six o'clock. Okay. So you dinner hour, then six o'clock It was on for a half hour, six to six 30. They were all on at the same time. If you missed it, you couldn't get it again until the next night at six o'clock. Okay. Right. Then we started to have morning programs, day, you know, early morning programs like the Today Show. But again, if you missed it, then you couldn't get it again until the next broadcast cycle. There was nothing going on during the day. They didn't have, now it's 24 hours a day, constant. You get it on your phone, you get it on your computer, you get it on your iPad, and there's no break. Right. You know, we talked about not getting a break with social media. And if you had a magazine, you left it at home. If you had a TV, 
the TV stayed at home. Now it's with you 24 hours a day and your their brains aren't getting a rest. You right. don't get a respite from all this stuff. And it's just like you're bombarded by it. So for teenagers who don't yet have the ability to sort everything out, the world does look like a more stressful and dangerous place than it ever has been. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, another uh, point that he brings out and that he mentions um, comes up to uh, parenting practices, parenting strategies. And, and we have absolutely seen a, a tremendous increase in, well, right. you know, just a couple of decades ago, there were three parenting styles. <laughs> and now there are, I mean, there's, there are books uh, full of parenting styles that, that we can talk about, but some of the, some of the big things that are really coming out um, with, you know, in parenting styles and is really just pushed and pushed and pushed is this idea that parents have to keep their kids schedules completely full all the time. Right. Um, and they just keep, because they need to prepare for college or they need to prepare for these next things in life. And so if they want to be successful in college, they have to be able to play the piano and they have to be able to speak three languages and they have to do this and they have to do that. And they have to make all A's and and so parents push and push and push. So kids are, you know, they're playing soccer two nights a week. They are taking piano once a week. They're doing tutoring three nights a week. And now suddenly the kid is going and expected to perform at a high rate, a high, high level, you know, every day. Right. That's right. And I love that he took this on and I love the way he dealt with it. Yes. He talks about modern parenting strategies and he uses the term rugrat race, you know, rugrat being a kid. And it is the rat race for youngsters. And it starts very early. Kids are starting at three and four years old with these huge schedules designed to, um, to prepare them in every way so that they have a resume that will get them into the elite colleges. And today elite colleges are not just the Ivy League, they're most state schools as well. For example, in Florida, uh, the University of Florida, the flagship university here is is almost at the status of an Ivy League school. You know, you need to have all these credentials to get in. But in addition to overscheduling children, the other phrase, the other term he uses is this business of accommodation. And I think that's the larger, it's not just the rat race the kids are on, it's that parents are willing to accommodate to their kids' preferences. If you don't like broccoli, you don't have to eat it. <clears throat> if, you don't, if you don't wanna do this, you don't have to do it. If you might need more help, uh, you might need more time, you might need a trigger. What that does is, is if you're always accommodating to your kids' preferences, you're denying them the opportunity to develop uh, resilience and strength and internal fortitude because they don't ever have to face anything that they don't like. Right. And, and, and I, I love the idea of all, what all of this does is it makes kids, even though parents are pushing, 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 you know, and we think about, we've talked before about how, you know, in academics, we are pushing kids to where you know, kindergartners are doing what second graders right. used to do and um, you know, you have sixth graders taking, um, you know, high school yeah. classes and everything. Right. Um, so while we're pushing in some of these areas to excel, kids are growing up slower because they don't have the opportunities to experience some of these things. I mean, you know, we, you talked about getting driver's license a few minutes ago. 
learning to drive is a, is a really critical and important um, way to learn competence, to learn how your behavior influences and affects other people. Um, and and it, it teaches you some really important social, um, not to mention visual, spatial, and all those kinds of coordinations and, and things like that. But it teaches some of those really important competencies and kids aren't doing it. Yeah, parents, that's aren't, right. parents aren't requiring their kids to do those things anymore. It's almost like a little Christmas tree or an Easter egg tree where you're hanging, you're, you're decorating your child with tennis lessons and music and languages and, you know, merit badges. And you're hanging all this tinsel on them, but yet there's no internal strength. Kids, kids don't have any, they don't have any internal strength. They're not resilient. They're not strong. They're not um, internally motivated. You know, it looks nice. They have a 4.5 grade point average, but there's nothing inside. There's, there's and eventually that's going to catch up with them. And they're going to—they're—they're they're not going to have what they need. Yes, they've been accommodated, they've been nurtured, they've been trained, they've been coached, they've been tutored, but they've never developed anything on their own. Right. Absolutely. You know, we have to remember James Madison was 23 when he was the um, ambassador to England. Right. You know, or yeah. um, we have all kinds of things that we can talk about with that. But they are growing up more slowly. Right. And there's, there's a funny, there's a there's funny, there's a, a program at Yale called SPACE, S-P-A-C-E, Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. And essentially what it does is it teaches parents to be less accommodating. Yeah. So, so it teaches parents how to expose their children to things they don't like right. so that they learn how to manage stress. Um, there was an article published a couple of weeks ago and the author was advocating do something you hate every day. Right. And he began by saying with a cold shower. He said, it just teaches you that you can survive, that you can feel discomfort and survive. So he said, he takes a, um, when he's done showering him and he stands in this ice cold water for a few minutes just to teach himself that he can tolerate stress. Yeah. Okay? So, but we deny kids the opportunity to tolerate stress. You know, we remember that one thing about the, the dad, his daughter came up and my coach isn't, my coach isn't giving me enough playing time. That's a, that's a work harder. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that again, um, transitions nicely to, to some of the other possibilities that he mentions, because I, I think that we see, we've seen an increase in things like, um, uh, substance use and, and stuff in, in kids, um, as well as parents. Um, and, you know, that contributes to some of these issues. You know, when you can't cope with things, you, you sometimes look for things to, to help you not right. have to think about them or to help you cope with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- we, we have sort of societal expectations. We, we were talking about college a few minutes ago, and, um, uh, but th- we certainly are seeing this in, in high schools, in, in middle schools even, where, um, you know, we're sort of celebrating or, or emphasizing this fragility uh, uh, for kids. You know, we don't want to do anything that makes them uncomfortable. We don't want to do anything that makes them have to think outside their, you know, move outside their comfort zones. And, um, you know, that to me is a very dangerous um, line to walk because for all these same reasons, you know, you, you, sometimes you have to be uncomfortable to grow. That's right. Um, and, and we're, 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 we're restricting or preventing kids from experiencing that. Right. 
That's right. And now we offer trigger warnings, you know, like, well, in today's class, I'm going to be talking about this. So I want you to know. So if you're sensitive, you can leave the room. Just yeah. the opposite of what an education should do. An education should help you to become stronger, more determined um, and more resilient. But right. yet we're, we're taking away the, the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And then, you know, the last thing is political uh, polarization, this very angry political mood in our country today. What does that do? It creates mutual hatred and, and less tolerance. OK, when when politicians and news media, um, there's this there's this extreme negativity and anger um, against other groups. Well, you're teaching hatred. You're teaching right. intolerance, you know, right. um, people use the word liberal. They spit it out of their mouth. So it's a bitter pill. Um, no, these are just differences of opinion, you know, and, and so why do we teach, so we're teaching hatred and intolerance, right. and hatred and intolerance make for a more dangerous um, and, and um, an unhappy world. Right, yeah, so, I, I, but as, as we look at all of this, I, I think that, you know, you know, our sort of take-home messages uh, our, our messages, because there's a number of things to pull, pull out from this, and that is that, you know, the first thing, of course, is that not one of these is um, there's not a single one of these that is the best explanation and, and right. for explaining all of it, that we, all, all of these changes that we're seeing. Um, right. It's likely a combination of all of these things and more, you know, other things that we haven't thought about. That's right. That's, that's the true value of this article is it, is it finally says there is no single explanation these, they're combining in some way, mm -hmm. but there's no single explanation to say, this is what's causing it. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, you know, again, kind of pulling things that we've talked about over the, over the last couple of months, you know, when we see some of these statistics and some of these things that are going on, we have to remember that um, while, as, he, as this author says, as kids are seem to be growing up more slowly, emotionally, mm -hmm. um, they're growing up fast, faster, sort of externally like um right. with their with the information that they have but they don't know how to manage that information and they, they don't know how to to cope with some of these distress and so you, you end up with kids who know things that maybe are are, are surprising and maybe even impressive that they know some of this stuff right. but they don't really know how that information fits within the social emotional world that they live in and so then they apply it wrong or they they put themselves into situations where they have various problems right. that they can't then cope with. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then on top of that, you have this news cycle that creates this existential room for their parents. So their parents are anxious and nervous. They're mm -hmm. frightened that their children are going to be, you know, harmed in some way. And so parents pass that on to children or they bubble wrap their kids. They want to protect them Right. from all of these possibilities out there. And so they're constantly accommodating and sort of paving the way helicopter parents or snow right. plow or lawnmower parents. They're sort of making the world a safer place for their children, which is on the one hand, it's good, but on the other hand, robs their children to develop the strength that they need to do it themselves. Right, yeah, and I think it's both of those things. I think it's that the parents pass on the gloom, uh, the existential gloom uh, of what's happening in the world and then they reinforce that by putting that bubble wrap and protecting right. everything and say, not only is this world unsafe and, and um, you know, a danger to you, but it's you, 
I can't even do anything. You can't do anything about it. So I'm going to wrap you in this protection and make sure that nothing bad ever happens to you um, because you can't handle it. And then kids never learn how, and then they're, you know, they, they never have to gain the skill of being resilient. Right. That's right. And, and so, so we talk about the internet. Um, the internet is a wonderful thing, you know, and it gets better and better. I, I always think about how difficult it was to do research back in the 80s and even in the 90s that you had to go to libraries and there was this cumbersome activity. Now you go on the internet and there's just all this stuff to choose from and it's immediate. There's an article out today, this weekend in the news about maybe we should do away with scientific papers because it takes so long. By the time you publish the paper, it's old news, okay? And so this internet is a fact. I think about, can you imagine what Thomas Jefferson could have accomplished if he had the internet? <laughs> he did it with a pen, he did it with a quill pen, okay? Imagine if he had the internet. But as, as Thompson says in the article, it's also a carnal, carnival of negativity. Right. Okay? So it, and it really is. As fabulous as the internet is, it, it can be a very destructive, it can have a very destructive influence, especially on young minds. Yeah. And, and the same with social media. Um, right. You know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefit. I, I think that we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of potential benefit to social media, right. but we have to be very cautious about what it replaces. Um, as right. we talked about earlier, you know, it, if you're on social media, instead of going out to the movies with your friends, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a big difference. That's a big problem because you're, you're losing some of that sociality. You're losing some of those interactions, some of those social skills that you need to be successful and to be, right. build that resilience. You're just losing all of that stuff. Right. Right. So between, between what the effect that that has and the effect of parents protecting you, right. these kids are growing up without a core strength, you know, right. um, not a physical core, but this, this emotional core resilience and being able to, you have to have opportunity to learn that you can handle stress. I mean, right. it doesn't come automatically. You have to go through it and know that you can survive it. Right. Absolutely. So, so go ahead. No, that's it. I, I was thinking that all this made me think of the glacier, my glacier theory, which is that, you know, it takes one more snowflake. <laughs> it takes yeah one additional snowflake and the glacier starts to move. Right. And that reminded, it reminded me of this because this is, this is an accumulation of factors mm-hmm. that parents need to be aware of. It's not a single factor. It's not the cell phone. Parents say, oh, she's addicted. It's not just the cell phone. It's a more complex picture than that. Right. And we have to acknowledge that it's more complex. And we have to provide children with the opportunity to develop strength and resilience. And that comes by stubbing your toe and skinning your knee occasionally, okay? Um, There was another article in the paper, uh, in the news this weekend about um, the Japanese are beginning to raise their children um, by providing them opportunities to experience stress. They're letting their kids, um, and, and there's a preschool, there are preschools in Japan. They just let the kids roam around. And, and discover things, on their, not discover academic things, but they expect them to clean the room and to take out the garbage and to empty the waste can. These are kids who are five years old, Absolutely. learning how to take care of things. Okay? Absolutely. And so there's some, there's some um, new approaches to parenting and teaching coming out of Japan that I'll have to take a closer look at. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we'll keep our eye out for that and we'll 
you know, as we find more, we will share more. Yep. All right. So that's it then for today. Um, until, Until next time. Stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid.